Welcome back to another edition of the Exchange for Entrepreneurs podcast. I'm your host, James Black. And this week, I welcome back yet another return guest to the program, Braden Sutton from BC Bud Co. Now, Braden isn't just the CEO of BC Bud Co. He's, uh, he's had an illustrious career as a trader, as an entrepreneur, investor. Um, at a young age, he's even written a book. And so in this conversation, we'll talk a bit about the BC Bud Co. We talk about what is bringing him back to the cannabis industry after his experiences with uh, Supreme Cannabis and 1933 Industries. And then we talk a bit about his book and the motivation as to why he wrote a finance and what I would call a psychological slash philosophy book. Um, there's a lot to it. And uh, this will be just one of many conversations I hope to have with Braden over the years on this program. So without further ado, Braden Sutton, my guest on this week's show, this episode of the Exchange for Entrepreneurs podcast. Enjoy. James Black here with Braden Sutton. Okay, Braden's an old friend of mine entrepreneur, investor, and CEO of BC Bug Co. Listed on the CSE under the symbol BCBC. Braden, broadcasting from an undisclosed location. How are you doing today? I am good, sir. Thanks for having me, James. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I won't tell people where you are, but I, I will say that you are somewhere nicer and sunnier. So um, there's a lot <laughs> I want to talk to you about today. I was really motivated to talk to you, especially at the beginning of the year. I've been having a lot of conversations with entrepreneurs and, and, and uh, executives, sort of about industry-wide uh, topics. And when I think about Braden Sutton and uh, your experience in the capital markets, I know you've been in a lot of different things, but cannabis comes to mind first and foremost. Now you're the CEO of BC Bug Co. And um, I really want to know that this is a fairly recent listing. And, and this is something that really fascinates me that in a market where there hasn't been a lot of acceptance of the industry on the capital market side, it's it's been on a bit of a slew. Um, what brings you back to cannabis? Why, why are you in this space when all the headwinds are against it? Everything else is not pointing in that direction? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I guess the short answer, I want to do good by this industry. Um, British Columbia, for example, has like a billion dollar black market. We're in year four of legalization. I think that's an opportunity just with respect to the transition over to the legal regime. It's going to take some time, but, you know, there's a, a major, major amount of cannabis being sold in this country. And I think each year as more and more of that goes into C45, um, there's a lot of brands right now, but I think a lot of them will, will go by the wayside. A lot of the producers will go by the wayside. So, you know, the goal really is to create a multi-generational brand at a time where this is really a once in a lifetime opportunity, much like the repeal of prohibition or, or anything. Cause as I remind people, this is a plant with about 7,000 years of recorded use that's been illegal for 75 years. So, um, I still see the opportunity. I see that initial blow off of the mania. The pendulum kind of goes extreme in those instances. So now we're in the extreme low, you know, trough, lowest trough sentiment wise. Um, and I think it'll go back. I think it'll take some time, but I want to be part of the, uh, the positive, you know, move back capitulation as it were in the space. Right. You mentioned C45. Well, can you just tell our viewers and listeners what that is? Yeah, it just refers to the Canadian legal framework. So anything that's not in the old medical regime or the black market now known as the legacy market. Um, and again, we're only four years into that that ball game of, of legal. So I, I, another thing I remind people when prohibition was repealed, the Volkstead act was called 1933 in America. There was a 10 year battle over a decade where the old, you know, rum runners and gin joints and the Canadian whiskey came down. Still, it took a decade for the legal market to really get hold. Um, so again, I point out we're in year four, it's early days. It's going to be hard for a half a decade, but I think people will be rewarded that can stick it out for the next four or five years. Right. So I, it's funny. I was in Vegas for the MJ Biz Conference back in November and I got a toque from one of our clients. It said, buy legal. 
And I assume yeah. your challenge in BC is much the same as anywhere else, especially in California and other states and provinces, um, where there's still a huge black market. And I'm just curious from your perspective, how does a house of brands or a producer, uh, even someone just on the retail side, how, how do you, how do you break through the black market? Yeah, you got to check every box. So you have to have phenomenal quality. You have to be incredibly consistent with that quality and you have to have value. Um, if you don't have both of those things in terms of really hitting the mark quality wise and then having the right price point, you're doomed as we've seen with a lot of the, the, the legal offerings. Um, the black market is still winning over price. Uh, you've got a lot of people where there's a bit of an education gap where they go, well, I can go buy an ounce of pot from my illegal store for $80. And you go, well, of course you can. You don't know what it is. You don't know if there's mold or mildew or heavy metals, which there always is if you get it tested, which most people don't want to do. So as that education piece moves forward, I think people will realize that paying significantly more for something that you know exactly what's in it, where it comes from, that it's sourced ethically and legally, and it's not contributing to organized crime, I think people are, are finally kind of waking up to that. Interesting. And now in your previous experiences with uh, other public companies in the space, um, and just also observing what has happened in the Canadian space with the LPs, um, what are what are some of the observations? And I, I want to use the word mistakes. Like, what are some of the mm -hmm. mistakes that were made um, in growing pains, perhaps even a better term, that the industry went through that you now know to avoid or are seeing as uh, red flags that you won't go towards uh, with this new company? Well, infrastructure is the, the big obvious one. You all remember, everyone remembers the term maximum funded capacity. Me and my partners have always <laughs> said that's an absurd measurement. Um, mm -hmm. You've got the ability to produce the product and then you've got a retail demand on the shelf of people asking for it. You need to have that retail demand. The, the, the product side, the commodity of cannabis is easy to fulfill. You can go source it. You can have, you know, contract manufacture it. You can buy it right across the country through a plethora of options for phenomenal quality. But how do you get people to ask for your brand, your bag of product, your pre-roll by name? So what everybody did was focused on this insane notion that we're going to grow the most and then we're going to export. And it's like, okay, well, the export theory is great until those countries become mature, then that's gone. Canada is not going to become some global leader in cannabis production. I don't think that's that's really realistic, certainly, you know, to a certain extent, but not on a 10-year-out basis. Mm -hmm. um, so really realizing the fact that, that there's a commodity being the underlying plant, it's not special. There's no moat. There's no real IP outside of genetics and, and a little bit of process stuff. So ultimately, you need trust. You need brand trust. You need people to be able to connect to a brand, to want to ask for a brand, because it's a very fickle industry. People are very big on their Budweiser or their Kokanee. They're very big on their cigarettes, not so much with their wine, interestingly enough. Spirits, very, very much, there's a brand loyalty. Cannabis really struggles. So if you go into a store, you say, I really like the XYZ pre-roll, and they go, oh, well, here's another one. It's two bucks cheaper. Give it a try. Nine out of 10 people will give that a try. And if they like it, they're never going back to the one they liked before. So that goes back to what I mean. You have to really hit the mark. You have to provide value. Josh Taylor and myself, our mandate was always simple. We said we want to avoid any redundance and we want to make products only exclusively that someone would be willing to get in their car or their bike or whatever, go to the store and pull out money and buy. And you have to give them a reason to want to go do that. And if you can't do that, you're just another one of the 200 brands on the shelf from some opaque, giant, big box company that people will try all day long, but loyalty is going to be impossible to, to hook into somebody. 
Yeah, of course. And then the product has to be legit because you're often not able to brand it, package it and display mm-hmm. it in a way that gives you any sort of advantage like you could with other CPG type products, right? They imagine a product where you can't label, you can't really use the packaging to your advantage. So you have to have this amazing bag appeal when they first see it. It has to be the right consistency, the right moisture. It has to smoke incredibly well. The effect has to be perfect and the price has to be perfect. That's that's a hard mark to hit consistently. So as we've seen, very few are doing it. There's some good ones doing it, but certainly the big box guys that came out loud and proud did a poor job of most of those checkboxes. For sure. And just as of this recording last week, big uh, job cuts coming uh, at Canopy or uh, announced. So, yeah, yeah. And, big relative hey, to the, got, the industry. Yeah. And you've also got a market cap still. I think there's, you know, 500 some odd million shares out. So unfortunately, if you look, there's a lot of kind of gravity. There's a lot of air. Uh, underneath that. So as, as Chris Perry actually recently pointed out, when you got the little brands with maybe five or 10 employees and, and not huge sales numbers that are a five or a 10 mil market cap, you can easily get those to 20 into 30 into maybe 40 million and beyond. But when you're a billion dollar company and you're not hitting the mark quarter after quarter, you hate to say it, but you've got a long way to fall before that finds its bottom. Interesting. Yeah. And interesting, interesting to reflect on the companies I've sold into the big uh, consolidators in the industry that are now almost back as being the thesis for investment back into the industry. Sort of the, the, I, I, I don't want to say too many specific names, but I remember Haiku and Tokyo Smoke mm-hmm. and brands like that, yeah. which, um, you know, it almost sounds like that's, that's where you, you're at at that stage of size. Let's change gears just for a second. So I know you wrote a book and I've never written a book in my life. Uh, I even have a hard time reading them sometimes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I got to ask you, what the heck motivated you to write a book? And it's not a short book either. It's over 250 pages um, available on Amazon called Money, Mind, Beyond Speculation. Um, we're similar age and you, you it feels like you've lived four lifetimes versus mine, uh, <laughs> having gone through the book and knowing you. So tell me, and we'll, we'll branch off from here, but tell me why you wrote a book about investing and philosophy of investing. Well, I appreciate you bringing it up because it, it's was very important to me. Um, that book was over 500 pages. I've been writing it for over a decade. I spent two full years writing it through COVID. I should say editing it down. It was like a Tarantino movie that was five hours ago. How do you get this <laughs> thing to two? And that was the hardest part because there was so much in there. Uh, I have lived many lifetimes. I've been speculating in the capital markets now for 19 years. Um, you could almost say 20 at this point. And I've seen everything. I have uh, been a part of a lot of really cool things. I've made millions and I've lost millions many times. So I think the the impetus behind the book was was twofold. A, I wanted to reflect on where I made money and why, where I lost money and why. And I wanted to be able to go to... I had a really good mentor and a guy named Jamie Wheel. And we were in a coaching call once and he's a best-selling author. And he said, write this book to your 18-year-old grandson. And I thought, wow, there's a, there's a sort of a notion or an avatar that if I could say, here you go, read this, and please don't waste your 20s like I did. I wasted a decade you know, chasing fluff and being promoted and speculating emotionally and not understanding asset allocation, not understanding risk, not understanding parlaying and you know, mitigating risk and, and how to spot opportunities and yet not get sucked in too deep. So a lot, a lot went into it. In 2010, I wrote myself these rules, which if you actually flip to the back of the book, there's an actual image of this journal entry, in November of 2010. And I said, okay, I'm not going to lose money anymore. I got wiped out in 08, just had my first son. My son was born September 08, the week of Lehman and Bear. 
mm-hmm. finally got up to an okay net worth, got cut and then some, like was leveraged in 08 because of a, an advisor. So I talk a lot about the banking business, talk a lot about uh, PR and press and, and, you know, the whole world of CNBC. You know, CNBC is owned by NBC. NBC is owned by Comcast. Comcast is primarily owned by Vanguard. Vanguard is the biggest shareholder in the S&P 500. So much like when you have a penny stock and you promote on Stockhouse, a great company, the same thing occurs when, when the CEO of Intel shows up on CNBC. So helping people really to understand how that world works, helping people understand why people buy lottery tickets, why do people go to the horse race, why people go to the casino, why the casino house wins, why people go in anyway. So I, I split the book in two ways, your mind and your money. And the, the, the last thing I'll, I'll share, and I, I'm very passionate about this subject, is I had a, a grandfather, military man, never made more than like 60 grand a year. And he retired very wealthy. He had a couple homes. He had an airplane. He had a beautiful life. He never worried about money. He treated mm. it like fuel. It was always, uh, it was fun coupons. You know, it was, uh, it was the, the paper for the paywalls of life. I had a father that made 250 to 300K a year, uh, very successful economically. He never had any uh, equity. He never had any investments. He died with nothing, literally, after a 30-year career making almost 300K a year. So, so I really wanted to understand as a student of life and a student of money what these two gentlemen did differently. And I think I did a pretty good job. And I've, I've read every book I think I could, could, we could both name in finance and behavioral economics. And I think I did a pretty good job kind of summarizing the message, which is really simple in this book and made it kind of a 200 page digestible three hour read for, for a layman. I'm a, I'm a blue collar guy with no, no, uh, exciting beginning to my life. So quite the opposite. And I want to encourage the working man. Like I've done every trade imaginable up until I was about 20 years old and then finally got my footing, wasted again a decade learning, pretty much retired at 30. And I wanted to be able to dissect all of those sort of events, why and how, and then ultimately scale that knowledge to uh, an 18 year old, for example. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story because I started my finance experience um, working wise, same week you just mentioned there, the Lehman Brothers Mm. and uh, Bear Stearns and and watching the TV and just going like, what the heck has just happened here? (laughs) I can't, I can't write my mark. I haven't seen a, you know, it was, it was a, beyond generational moment, but also uh, one of those moments where you don't know what is going to come next. Do I have a job next week? Do I even, you know, go back to school? Like what's going to happen here? It's very jarring. So we, we saw, we, we made it through it. And then obviously there was bad markets in the small cap space, especially in the mining side. And then, you know, we mentioned at the top of the show about the mining sector or sort of the cannabis sector. Um, You know, again, it's, it's not today's in fashion sector, so there's consequences of that. Um, but tell me, you know, looking ahead to the year, looking ahead even beyond cannabis, um, what gets you excited? If, if there's something that you would speculate on or something that you would, again, we're not offering investment advice on this program, but, mm-hmm. you know, just something you would do more research on, something that gets you a little more excited than other things. What would you, what would you get up in the morning, turn your page of the paper to as far as a topic and want to read about? Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a fundamental guy, so I will always be a gold and silver guy. I can't really help it. I love the metals. I love the metals, especially because the U.S. printed so much money in the last 25 months. I think there's an arbitrage mm-hmm. play with precious metals for sure. I would dissect that further and say I love silver because it's a consumable precious metal. It makes it very rare. Most silver that's mined ends up in a mine, probably in a landfill, 
gold ends up as jewelry for the most part or bullion. Um, I love energy. I'll always love oil and gas for a, a number of reasons, both for, from a fundamental investment point of view. I think that as long as we live, we will be burning petroleum. I think that um, natural gas is a, an opportunity. I think diesel fuel and, and even WTI, not because, you know, there's the ESG component, there's dirty, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But if you're going to eat food today, wear clothes and heat your home, unfortunately, you're going to need it. If you're going to travel anywhere or have freight ever, it's not going to be electric in our lifetime. There's no replacement for diesel or for jet fuel, at least mm-hmm. in the next 50 years. So I love uranium because I think it's going to actually help the world immensely. Um, I do like the battery metals to a certain extent. I think the lithium thing is, is out of proportion, but that's, you know, the world always needs bubbles. Um, I think there's other pockets of value in the battery metal segment, ex- excluding lithium that people overlook. So I'm definitely a fundamental guy. I think that's why weed has always appealed to me because weed is like gold to me in a, in a sense that I can understand tangible valuations. I can understand need. I often give an example of Warren Buffett. He, the story was he was 10 years old. He cracked a Coca-Cola, drank it and goes, shit, I'm going to drink one of these every day of my life. And then that was his whole thesis for being <laughs> the biggest Coca-Cola shareholder. I love a thesis that you can summarize in a sentence. Um, I'm going to burn fuel. I'm going to buy bullion. I'm going to hope that uranium makes a change. I'm going to always be buying battery products. Um, so for me, I'm, I am a commodity guy through and through. Um, I love special situation type things. I, I'm quite involved in the psychedelic space and, space and private side. I know that came and went pretty fierce, but it's certainly an industry to keep an eye on. It's, it's big, big in the United States and, and beyond. Um, I am a tech guy, but tech valuations are, are dicey when it comes to, uh, you know, trying to time them. Um, biotechs come off hard. So, um, you know, Canadian financials I love, but I'm, I always come back to, for me, the, the metals for the most part, I think, cause I can really easily, um, surmise and summarize in my mind the demand. And I can easily come to the conclusion that our fiat government controlled currencies are eroding dramatically. And I think that means that, that energy and metals are going to, in our lifetime, when we're 50, 60, we're going to wish we just put it all into metals. I, I do believe. Yeah, fair enough. No, it's funny you mentioned Coca-Cola and, and I always thought about, you know, who's going to be the Coca-Cola cannabis. And I, and it's maybe, I don't know if that's an apt um, question, but I think there's always room in, in any industry, especially consumables to be the best product also with the best brand. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think for a long time, people thought it would be too uh, based to be like, you know, that that's not what we're going for. It's a different vertical. It's a different sector. But I go, mm-hmm. why not? You know, why not? Why yeah. not have a product that you identify with as the best, but also the most identifiable brand? And, um, you know, that's what I hope for you guys. <laughs> I hope that's that's what you're developing. And uh, maybe if yeah. people are paying attention to what you're doing, what's the best way for them to connect? Uh, I am um, personally on, on Twitter. I've been loud on there for a very long time at Braden <laughs> Sutton. Um, Instagram, I'm always, you know, approachable and available. Um, my email is probably out there. If anybody wants to reach me by email or by phone, uh, the bcbc.com is our, our corporate site. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty accessible. I've, uh, as I said, Twitter has been an amazing place. I've interacted with everybody from Elon Musk to you name it. I've got some amazing friends, you know, like Jordan Peterson, people that, that are not accessible. I've always loved Twitter for that reason is you can, you can approach people that you'd normally never have access to. So, so that's definitely, uh, a place to connect uh, again, Instagram, um, anywhere else, but, um, 
yeah, the BC Bud Co. is, is, is out there as well. So anywhere that uh, any industry events, uh, you know, we continue to, to grow that brand coast to coast. So um, the visibility of that is um, is the most important thing for me right now. And I think the, the, the I'm going off on, on the side a little bit, but I think, again, back to like the Buffett comment is, you know, having the courage to be where everyone else is afraid to be is ultimately where not just fortunes are made, but but the the, the change of guard, the chips slide over to the other side of the table when you're willing to to really dig in and build values in an arena where no one else is is willing to be. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely, and it's something that we we try to position the show as the intersection of where entrepreneurship meets. Um, the public markets. And we've talked about entrepreneurs like, you know, um, Elon Musk, you mentioned him in his retweets and, uh, obviously, uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg who've developed, uh, or put poured billions of dollars into, uh, his metaverse project. And we go, yeah. you know, why are they doing that? That's not safe. You know, I mean, Elon does a lot of unsafe things, uh, when it comes from, yeah. um, what looks like an investment perspective. And, but but I think that's the way they're wired. I think that's what people like you are wired as. You 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 can't swim in the shallow water. It's it's not where you're going to have the best uh, adventure, the most depth of of investment opportunity. And yeah, that's 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 a great way to end the show. I think Braden is to uh, encourage people. I think to read your book. I think it's a great read uh, based on on the parts of it I've read. And I'm going to go and dig into it a bit more because I think the 18 year old James needs to read it, uh, let alone the 40 year old James and. Um, yeah, encourage you to uh, anyone who's watching to connect with Braden. Thanks for being on the show and uh, safe travels, my friend. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to the Exchange for Entrepreneurs podcast, a proud presentation from CNSX Markets Inc., operator of the Canadian Securities Exchange. As a reminder, the viewpoints on this show do not reflect those of the exchange and are solely those of the guests and do not constitute investment advice. For more information about the exchange, its services, and listed companies, please visit www.thecsc.com. Until the next show, thank you for listening, and don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button on your favorite listening platform. Thank you so much.